Welcome back to the Brew Theology Podcast. Today, Janelle and I get to hang out with Dr. Bill Walker. And uh, before we get into this episode, if you've liked any of our episodes from previous times, please do us a favor, go to iTunes, rate it, review it. Five stars is always better than, than no stars, of course. And, uh, you know, share it with your friends, Facebook, Instagram. We're at Brew Theology, Brew underscore Theology on Twitter. We have events throughout the country here and there. If you're, if you're listening and you're, if you want us to come to your area, we'd love to host a live uh, podcast event. We also have communities across the country, not only in Waco and in Denver, but in other areas as well. So check that online. Or if you want to start one, email us, Ryan at Brew Theology or Janelle at Brew Theology, and we'll get you started. So uh, without further ado, today we have Dr. Bill Walker. I believe it's the third. That's yes. right. I'm the third. Yes. And we're going to be talking about globalization, violence, and salvation. So Bill's going to guide us through his political and theological reflection on the violence and the injustice that's taken place in Mexico and Central America since 2006 as a result of the drug war. Uh, so in order to understand and respond to this conflict in the age of globalization, which uh, Bill will probably define more uh, in detail, Dr. Walker presents a theology of the drug war that transcends both a Eurocentric conception of the world and a merely political account of salvation. Bill Walker is a lecturer in theology and ethics at Baylor University, Sikkim, and Truett Theological Seminary. He received his PhD in philosophy of religion and theology from Claremont Graduate University and his MDiv from Truett Seminary here in Waco, Texas. I say here, you guys aren't even here. I'm the only one here in Waco right now. His research interests include political theology, economic ethics, and post-colonial studies. Uh, recently, he has taken the job as the executive director at Hill House Christian Study Center, is that right? At University of right. Texas in Austin. I, I'm the only one here that's going to say hook him. <laughs> Bill hasn't, even though we're both from Austin, Texas, and he lives there, he's full on green and gold. But welcome welcome to the Brew Theology Podcast. Good to have you. We had the pleasure here in Waco to have Bill, gosh, over a year ago, I believe. So now you get to hear him on the interwebs. Good to have you. Thanks, Ryan, for the the kind introduction and for the invitation. So fun to be with both of you, Janelle and Ryan on the podcast. Um, and I'm glad to know you know that about me, Ryan. That's impressive. I'm a green and gold guy at heart, even though I, I'm in Austin and, and work at UT. And so I, I, I tolerate. You know, <laughs> the, the, so the funny thing is like, so now, now that I've lived in Waco almost three years, people here hate Texas. And, I and I, I've actually, be, I've become sympathetic to that hatred, even though <laughs> I still, and I have, so I, I wear my, my burn orange hat occasionally and I have a buddy of mine he actually went the truth as well. He looks at me, he says, don't you wear that in bear country? Don't you do that? So, okay, back off. Back off. It's just it a hat, man. Heated, especially now with the, the exodus, you know, pending to the, to the SEC and all that. Right. Yeah. <laughs> all right, so uh, we like to start off with backgrounds, just hearing people's spiritual pedigree, uh, how they grew up and what they would identify with today. So tell us just a bit about your religious spiritual background before we get going. Yeah, of course. So as you mentioned, I'm from Texas. I grew up in South Texas, actually born and raised in Corpus Christi. And my family was from Austin. We eventually moved there, but uh, was in the Baptist church. It was a Southern Baptist church at the time, but it was pastored by, for part of the time I was there, uh, a guy, a professor who later, a guy who later became my professor, pastor, uh, um, sorry, Hewlett Glower. And he he was um, really a, an important person later in my life who who I think shaped my spirituality in some ways, or at least he represents what shaped my, my, what became my more mature spirituality. So even though we were SBC, it felt like a moderate, maybe call it evangelical Christian tradition, um, 
when we came to Austin, my my uncle's a pastor of a large church in Austin that's more of like the non-denom uh seeker sensitive movement uh in the in the vein of Willow Creek Saddleback, those kinds of churches in the 80s and 90s. So that shaped me as well. When I came to Baylor, um, I just kind of stayed in that environment for the most part, but but eventually came out of it through a short stint in charismatic circles and then went to seminary and that's where it started to all change and and deconstruct and reconstruct for me into something more like a um, multiple streams Christian expression where I find myself now where I, I, I draw significantly on and appreciate uh, Catholic Catholic thought and traditions liturgy uh, contemplative spirituality uh, certainly um, the justice streams of the faith and those who have been part of prophetic and kind of liberationist tradition alongside of kind of my evangelical background so sacramental uh i'd like to think that there's there's several streams sacramental and pneumatological evangelical uh contemplative and 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 activist all kind of running through my veins in some way uh hopefully in a in a healthy way uh today yeah you're you're a bit of a, a mutt like myself so i appreciate that that makes me feel at home too oh come on ryan give him the label uh, you probably heard this bill uh, i am i am an evolving anabaptist method you costal with process and liberation leanings Oh my god. But now but now I do the interfaith thing. So it's it's just I want to get a tattoo on my right arm. I have a, a tree that just needs some friends on it. And I want to it's my it's my Jewish rooted tree. And I want to put all the other symbols, but I also don't want it to look like an airbrush thing from some uh, truck stop in Florida as as I, <laughs> I some artist needs to help me out here. That sounds amazing. I think I you said that very quickly, but I I just I think I identify with at least most of those. So yes, sweet. Right, uh so can you just Briefly, as we move on, tell us about your spiritual journey and talk about those three stories of salvation and that fourth story that came to play when you crossed the border years ago and then everything changed for you. Yeah, good. Okay, now you're going straight to the book, Ryan. Um, cool. Well, this is, yeah, so I, I'll, to tell the story, yeah, I mean, of course, those, those three stories, and then I'll get into my story. Um, being evangelical, Baptist, grew up with the, pre the priestly understanding of Christ's function in the, the kind of account of the message of Christianity, uh, whereby uh, there's atonement for sin by way of substitutionary uh, death and sacrifice for our sake, um, which of course has a lot of biblical precedent and there's lots, there's many ways to understand that story. But that was that for me, like, like many people in the South in Protestant evangelical circles, that was the story. That was it, you know, and that was the only thing that you really needed to know uh, to be a Christian. It was what you need to tell other people. It's what it's what life was all about. Um, and of course, that's not all there is in Scripture. That's not the only story and the only uh, story of salvation. Uh, there are others. Uh, th those those kind of three offices that Calvin talks about in the Reformation. I mean, can can go back. They're not his ideas. You find him in Scripture. You find him in the tradition. Uh, priest, and then the other two, prophet and king or, or uh, the reign of God and prophet having to do with Jesus's role eventually, but also the prophetic tradition before him and all, all those who came who were sent by God that called the nation of Israel back to their true identity to the law and gave them a sense of belonging and home. And so the, the exilic experience for the Israelites is one in which uh, they're, they're wrestling with who they are and, and whether they can trust God and how to be who God's called them to be in, in a foreign land and and the prophetic speaks the the truth of of who God is and what they live for and what what their hopes are. Um, and in many ways, salvation is found in the the journey of coming home. Therefore, uh, and with with God's 
reign in Christ on the on earth as it is in heaven. That's the what you might call the kingly one, uh, and and there you see that the the conquest, the con the the victory of God over death, over sin, over suffering, and sometimes in atonement theory, you know, that looks like uh, the Christus Victor model. Uh, so there's others, but but I had just not been really exposed to, didn't appreciate, didn't understand why it mattered that there could be more than one salvation story. Uh, and so until really for me, it was my senior year in college, I went on this mission trip with my church out of Waco when I was at Baylor. And we did kind of the typical missionary thing where we pass out, pass out or short-term missions trip thing, I should say. You know, we, we pass out tracks uh, that happen to be translated into Spanish to people in short, short little afternoon outings into these public square kind of plaza areas to, to tell uh, Mexican but, folks. We Bill, thought, did, you, did you use the Evangicube? Do you know what that is? <laughs> I know. I do know what it is. We, we didn't <laughs> use that. You know, these, these were just little pamphlets. Uh, so, and, and it was, uh, gosh, I don't even know. I wish I had a copy of one still, uh, but it was what, what you might expect if you grew up in that world. And we, and we put on kind of dramas or, or plays depicting kind of the, the gospel story without words, and then started conversations with folks and handed out these tracks. I was, I studied Spanish. I was a minor in Spanish in college. So I, I passed for a translator, which is pretty sad. Uh, but that's, that was like the extent of our cultural competence, competency, I think, cross-cultural competency in that moment. Uh, and I just remember this one, this one conversation where these two, I think they were middle-aged men, as I recall, came up to us to one team I was with after we presented the gospel and we're trying to have conversations about it. Uh, and they wanted to, they wanted to talk to us. They asked these questions about uh, immigration and jobs and the economy in the Northern region, border region of Mexico. And we just didn't understand why they kept wanting to talk about that. We, we said, well, okay, that's interesting. We don't know. We don't have answers about that. We don't want to get political, but let me, let me tell you about Jesus. Cause that's why we're really here. And there I left with just this, this uh, dissonance that's feeling like, gosh, that didn't go well. It ended abruptly. I didn't know what to say. And I, there was no resolution. And I, it didn't come for several years that I began to make more sense of this story. But for some reason, that experience stayed with me. I carried it. And, and I've looked back on it many times as, I've, as I began to understand for the first time in my life, oh, these two things are totally and deeply connected. Like what, what is God's good news for the world through Jesus in the Christian story and tradition and these political, economic, uh, you know, human migration concerns. They are, uh, there is no separation of those two things. And I thought they were just totally different, kind of don't need to talk to each other uh, subjects, one being far more important than the other. So that that marks kind of the beginning of, of my journey into a, a different understanding of my faith and its relevance for all of life. Uh, and, and so I, I point there and say that's, that's what got me on, got me interested in at least that particular conflict, what became the drug war in Mexico in the following years, as it got really violent, and what 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 Christianity might say to that? How many years went by? Because you had said, look, it was a it was a hindsight, which typically is how we often learn, unfortunately. But it, hey, but in your in this case, like it worked for for good. So how many years went by until you the awakening became something that you began to study and do research on? Yeah, it it was gradual. That was 07. and and in the next three or four years is really where that that uh, education uh, took place for me and it was through it was through formal education but it wasn't only through formal education it was friendships it was conversations it was experience it was subsequent uh, actually uh, cross-cultural uh, trips to places like Mexico and and in one case Mexico for an extended period of time 
where my eyes were open to new realities and began to put together and connect these two stories or these two concerns of a political economic nature on the one hand and, and the gospel on the other. And, you know, in terms of just uh, the formal education side, though, I took a class at Truett when I was at Truett with a Baylor professor at the time, uh, Professor Mark Ellis, Dr. Mark Ellis, who's a Jewish liberation theologian, no longer at Baylor, and he's retired, and he, but we've remained in touch. And he was a, he became a mentor figure for me in a way, at least his, his, his body of work and his, his teaching did. It, it stayed with me in ways that, you know, I don't often experience with a, with a, with a class I'd been in. And then also uh, Roger Olson's class at Truett on uh, Christian social justice. I took both of those courses right next to each other, and that introduced me to just other other ways of understanding God's concern for the world and the temporal kind of uh, organization of, of power and and distribution of goods and services and what uh, what the Bible has to say about all of that. But I'd say over yeah those three four or five years that followed is when it when it took place for me. That's cool. So as you've um, been on this journey, it sounds like from what you you've written and talked about that globalization is part of where you have done a lot of your work. Can you define that for us um, and then unpack the major changes in globalism relating to the global South poverty, specifically in Mexico, as it sets this context for the ongoing drug war? Yeah, sure. Thanks, Janelle. Well, one definition of globalization could be that it is the, the widening, the deepening, and the speeding up of, of human and societal and even natural relationships and connections across the planet. Uh, so, so that's enabled, of course, largely by technology, but technology alongside and, and with uh, economic and political changes, cultural changes, in such a way that we can now speak of a kind of global village or global neighborhood, which is not to say, as sometimes has been the case, that everything's equal and it's this flat landscape. There's that famous Thomas Friedman book, The World is Flat, which makes an important point, but I think takes it way too far and overemphasizes uh, the degree to which anyone can have access to the benefits of this, uh, this new kind of interdependent uh, political reality and economic landscape. Uh, and so as a result of that, that the, all those changes, it's a really, I mean, we could list many things that, that encompass uh, globalization, many features of it. Um, but, but in essence, we are, it's no longer the case that, that we can really think of ourselves apart from relationship to the whole world. And that's just, uh, that, that was never the case before, but it's especially not true now. Um, because of how what we purchase, how it comes to us, who who makes it, uh, you know, the way that what happens on one side affects the other side so quickly, um, and 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 it comes to actually a very regional relationship like the one between the United States and Mexico, Central America, and the global South, at least in this hemisphere. Uh, you see, I mean, the, the the classic example might be the free trade agreements that have come into place, like NAFTA, which which have some. I mean, the reason these trade agreements, I think, have have been popular or thought of positively by some is because there is an obvious potential benefit there. The idea of lowering barriers to trade uh, is not is not like a terrible idea. It's helpful in many respects. It, it enables people to it enables neighboring countries, for instance, to concentrate on what they're good at to to trade without too much added cost, which in theory can. Uh, can benefit, it can create a mutually beneficial uh, partnership. 
What too often happens and what has happened in the case of the Mexico-US relationship is that something like, for instance, uh, the production and out, uh, exporting of, of corn uh, in, the, in, the northern, in the northern side of the border and on the US front, you, you have a, a different industry that's developed, this big agricultural industry in the US where corn can be produced at a massive level, very inexpensively, and then dumped in large quantities uh, down south without any trade costs added. So much so that it overwhelms the, what used to be a very rural, small-scale uh, farming uh, market and, and culture in Mexico. Uh, this happened you know, right after uh, NAFTA was imposed. And this benefited consumers in Mexico to an extent who could buy corn cheaply. And that that had some 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 uh, upsides, but overwhelmingly, what happened too is in a in a society that was more rural than urban, and more uh, farming oriented than anything else. Uh, quickly, they couldn't compete. They, that that population has to uh, give up their their what's been their only way of of providing livelihood for themselves for for generations and generations, and you eventually move to urban centers, uh, where at the same time, there began to be, because of this same trade agreement, uh, manufacturing plants uh, constructed that would uh, produce whatever it is that was being produced at a, at a lower cost than if they were domestic in the US and pay people lower wages. Um, that, that came in and, and offered some jobs, but, but that, that transition was, was very uh, volatile. And many people came in and had these uh, difficult working conditions and hours um, not everybody could be employed all of a sudden. There was there was a barrier to entry there uh, with regard to that transition. Then after not too long, companies in the U.S. started to realize, oh, we could actually make, we could save more money by building these factories and outsourcing to other parts of the world, not just Mexico. So while there's this big wave of people coming into the border region from the from what used to be their, their, uh, their farming life, uh, around the time that starts to somewhat get settled, uh, it's disrupted again. By even those jobs going away uh, and leaving uh, significant populations of folks without without uh, sustainable employment in, in urban environments, which becomes kind of this recruiting ground uh, for illicit cartel networks, drug drug trafficking organizations to recruit people to do their bidding for them at better pay too than anything that the market was offering, at least the the legitimate market. Um, so it really was a it became kind of a perfect storm in the '90s and 2000s for these uh, uh, these cartels to grab power and to take advantage of human capital, and and uh, capitalize on as well the, the the drug the drug profiting that they could the selling selling and trading drugs to the, to the north where we were consuming the vast majority of of drugs per capita in the western hemisphere. So yeah, you'd mentioned corn. Is there a? I mean, that's that that's a big example. Was there any others outside of that? Because I mean, it's it's interesting when you begin to unpack this. Like that's that's just one one crop. It's a huge crop, though, because like, we don't often think if we go, oh, you just get corn at the store. Were there any, any other uh, things that we were producing in warehouses that, that made a this rippling effect? I mean, this is a it's a it's a very sobering story with just with just corn, and that's that's the thing. Is like, oh my gosh, this is just it's just a food product, and nobody thinks of it in yeah. these terms. Yeah, I, th I think there are. I I don't actually. This is not something. I, I have a lot of expertise on just what all all the elements, all, everything that changed as a result of NAFTA. I mean, I, I do think that uh, it wasn't, it isn't just the the farming agricultural side. There is there is just the the movement of production 
Um, and it did, it did create, there was probably also a pull effect where people were drawn to cities for new opportunities because of the, bar the lowering barriers of trade. Uh, but there too, it, even, if that, even if that goes well, and this is more of a description than a prescriptive take on the effects of globalization, it's just that that introduces all kinds of new unintended challenges and consequences with a rapid change in a, in a country where sometimes the infrastructure is just not ready for it. Um, and, then, and then you see continued just kind of stagnant wages available to those who are working in those environments, uh, which, which leads to the, it makes appealing. Uh, when large numbers of folks are moving into border regions for low-paying jobs and manufacturing plants, uh, the alternative of going and working for um, a more powerful, more profitable uh, entity like a, a, a drug trade organization. Yeah, it, it definitely provides uh, empathy too when you when people hear this as well. Uh, so let's flip sides. Let's go to the to the U.S. side of this. Um, if you could, could you paint a that contextual picture of in, incarceration in the U.S. Mm -hmm. uh, with the timeline when the number of prisoners, people in poverty, um, and then people of color, they drastically change as it relates to these illegal drugs. And then we'll, we'll kind of go back and forth with U.S. and, you know, uh, Yeah, yeah, that, that's right. So, and this is, this is not as much the subject of, of the book I wrote, but it is absolutely directly related and relevant. And around the time that I was beginning to just re-understand this whole context, uh, you know, Michelle Alexander wrote her uh, kind of landmark book, uh, uh, The New Jim Crow, in which she she un unearths this uh, issue that is mass incarceration and traces the history of it. I mean, I don't think people were aware of this before, but it seems like that was, I think that was 2010 when she wrote that book. And it, it really did uh, become a watershed moment and in, 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 uh folks understanding, okay, here's one more way in which at a popular level, we, we, we now realize uh, people of color, the black community in particular has been disproportionately penalized, uh, disadvantaged and continue to be you know, affected by a systemic racist uh, um, arrangement here with the lingering effects going back to, of course, Jim Crow, but also ultimately slavery. And, and it began with the way the drug war was articulated at the, pop, at the public level and, and political attempts to stigmatize it. Uh, once people start consuming drugs, you know, and how, how the programs like dare, you know, and, and just say no, and this whole slow, become the, 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 the conventional wisdom about how we should combat this thing that is the public enemy number one, it's called, you know, by people like Nixon mm -hmm. and, and even Reagan too, repeat some of that rhetoric. Uh, so for for several decades, you know, there's one approach to dealing with drugs, and it's 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 criminalization, um, as opposed to what I think would have been far more effective, something more like education and treatment, you know, to to help folks realize this is uh, the consequences of this, uh, and and of course all the conditions that enable it, from from poverty and uh, other kinds of uh, injustices. I mean, are, are are put over here to one side, and we just talk about the substance abuse as though it's this isolated. Uh, mistake that uh, folks who don't know better make because because they are just either lazy or addicted or whatever. Um, so all of the, all of the ways that 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 um, that that drug drug use gets depicted, I think, in popular culture uh, and who it's associated with, had these undertones of like, okay, well, if you make that choice, you know, that's on you. That's no longer response. Society's problem to deal with. You're going to pay the consequences, which basically looks like, you know, a permanent record 
which closes the door for any way to uh, you know, turn that story around once you once you end up with um, you know uh, criminal charges against you for something like as, as as little as possession, for instance, not just not only dealing. Um, so to see and then to see the the grossly disproportionate way in which people of color and black young black men in particular um, are in prison relative to the overall population, and to then compare that to across across. Uh, racial lines to see that uh, actually white folks are using drugs just as much. <laughs> they just don't get, we don't go to jail for it, right? We don't get arrested for it. We don't get in trouble for it. Um, that was staggering and astonishing to me. And then that does, then that's not even to speak of like, once you are, let's say you do serve a term and you get out, like, what are your options? And that's why people just, there's such a high, you know, recidivism rate. Um, and that, that continues to be the case, even though there's good changes that are starting to get implemented here. So on the Northern side, to put it, to kind of summarize on the northern side, folks that consume drugs, the way that's dealt with is okay, the, the lower income folks and the people that don't look like majority culture, they're the ones that have to uh, kind of carry the burden, suffer the consequences of how society wants to deal with this problem. And on the southern side of the border, you know, those who don't have better economic options get caught up in the fighting over the powerful people making money off the whole thing. Um, and it's like, okay, gosh, this is not the story I was told about what the problem is. I need to um, rethink this whole. Uh, uh, trade situation and and who's getting taking advantage of and what my role and responsibility is in it, even if I'm not a consumer, right? Even if I'm not the one using the drugs, how am I part of this problem as someone who just goes along with my life, not thinking about you know uh, what what are the cause and effect and and what's the rhetoric and how's it doing doing harm and sort of perpetuating the problem? Yeah, have you also looked at how for profit prisons go play inside this dynamic? Yeah, well, I mean, I'm I, not deeply, but it, I mean, I, there's a book by a guy named Mark Lewis Taylor called uh, The Executed God, in which it's it's largely about the death penalty, but he's talking and then he has some articles he's written since then. It was written 20 years ago, but looking at the, the prison industrial complex more generally and how the incentives are all wrong if you actually care about, you know, restorative justice to where you, you can, you can, there can be uh, prison uh, profiting through what basically benefiting from how many people can you fit into a building right. and, and how long can you keep them there? How much can you charge to keep them there? I mean, that is the opposite of like anything to do with the common good and, and recovery and well-being for society. It's more like, how do we take advantage of those who, uh, have these unfortunate circumstances and get arrested and so on? Yeah. Uh, so yeah, yeah. It's, it's, I mean, it's, it doesn't make any sense to me while that, while that, why that would be something that's allowed, um, if if you're wanting to, uh, you know, seek human flourishing for a nation. Right, right. But, it's, it, but it seems as if the, you know, the, those who profit, right, they they need they need the issues down south to continue on in order that's, for that to be profitable. Right. Yeah. yeah, that that it, that it does look like that. Mm -hmm. No one's calling that out really, right? I mean, I guess some people are. Yeah, I mean, a, a little <laughs> bit. It, it It's kind of, yeah. Um, I think, I think somehow we talk more about like for-profit colleges and get mad about that, but for-profit prisons somehow seem to have snuck under the radar a little more. Mm -hmm. Well, do you, as you've done your work and research, do you have some recommendations for changes in U.S. drug policy and the criminal justice system that would create, you know, better outcomes, a more equitable society? Uh, yeah, I mean, I, there are some things to recommend, but I think before even doing that, what I'd what I'd want to back up and say is that you know this, for whether 
people of faith, people who are who are spiritual people who care about obviously just believe in there that there's a a good, true, beautiful reason we're all here and want to spread that and not something else um, for for society. Uh, you know, it, it, looking at looking at the way that um, as as my Christian faith informs like, my role in all of this, um, it had to start. It had to start there and just ask questions about like, okay, what, what do I need to be, what do I need to care about? And what, and, and do I have any, any, is there anything I can do? And, and what, what kind of alerted me to that set of questions was uh, the influence of this, of this theological movement, because this is at the end of the day, I am a theologian more than a, than a, I'm not trying to recommend like public policy, like, a, you know, political science, but, uh, but, but churches and people of faith have to recognize the way, the way that, um, their faith speaks to concern about these issues, and then how that that then can translate into awareness and and uh, giving a voice to those who don't have a voice. So for me, it began with discovery of a way of doing theology that always is already socially situated, whereby as someone who benefits from a certain amount of power, freedom, privilege, wealth, as as a as a, as a white male in in North America, um, I I am naturally inclined to uh, to think theologically from that place and to not see some of the things that someone who doesn't live where I live might see. This was the the, the great contribution for me of the Latin American liberation theological tradition, which which is not something that I wholesale subscribe to. And it came out of an era in the latter half of the 20th century, middle of the Cold War, different time. And, 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 and it's transcended that time. And there's things that I take away from it still that I think have actually been, for the most part, incorporated into more mainstream theology now. And so I, those things, those are things like, uh, you know, just the, the recognizing that the Bible has, the Bible points to a kind of privileging of the perspective of those on the margins. Um, and what what the Catholic Church calls the preferential option for the poor, uh, that 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 we can't see the world truthfully until we've let ourselves try to see it or hear it or understand it from the vantage point of those who are excluded from the benefits of uh, kind of normative society. Um, and that for Christians, the, the the call and response there is not to come in on like some kind of messiah complex rescue mission with all the answers and solutions but rather to draw near enter into and have a relationship with um those who are uh, experiencing disenfranchisement somehow uh, which that that's a that's a whole uh, other conversation of what does it look like to to be with and be uh, a church of um the poor and 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 the uh, the victims of history but the point is we need to be and we need to go on the journey of learning what that what that looks like, mm -hmm. uh, where it's not we're not talking across like, oh, them over there, their problem. It actually their problems become start to become our problems because uh, we, we are connected at that kind of uh, that kind of level. Um, and this is ultimately the move that God makes in Jesus, Christians would say, right? God comes and enters into the human condition fully. Uh, and that's that's ultimately the, the the best news about the gospel, I think is that we're not alone and that God is with us and that there is hope in the face of sin, death, and suffering. God experiences that suffering, and therefore we are invited into that suffering with, with the long view that uh, it doesn't have final power over us. Um, and we don't have to be afraid 
of what we might lose uh, and of what um, you know this this world might might take away. So that that that's really important for what then would be a recommended action afterward is that that backdrop, because it's really easy to fall into the trap of uh, just pointing the finger and being uh, critical all the time and saying we need to do this right. instead of that, and not anticipating the ways in which even those good recommendations are going to probably have unintended uh, negative effects a lot of times. That's just politics. Thanks so much for listening to the Brew Theology Podcast in Part 1 with Bill Walker. If you like this episode, please rate and share uh, this episode with others. You can find us on Facebook and Instagram at Brew Theology, on X, formerly known as Twitter, at Brew underscore Theology. We look forward to seeing you next week, and have a good one. Cheers. <laughs>